Uh, we're going to read together tonight from the New Testament. If you've got this wonderful book of God, the Bible, the Holy Word of God. If you've got a book like this, you're a very wealthy individual because here is the treasures of God and His Word. And we're reading from the book of Acts in the New Testament in chapter 24, and we're going to commence to read at verse 22. Acts chapter 24 and verse 22. I love this book, the Bible. I read it through every year uh, from cover to cover. I've actually finished this year's reading uh, through the Scriptures. Uh, but uh, So I've already got a head start for 2022. And uh, that's really great. Uh, so now, uh, Acts 24 and verse 22. And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way or the way of Christ, he deferred them and said, When Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your matter. This is him addressing the apostle Paul. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and that he should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister or come unto him. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul, that he might loose him. Wherefore he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus came into Felix's room or job, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. And that's our Bible reading for tonight and the basis for our message this evening. Dear Heavenly Father, we come together tonight and I thank you for these people who have traveled tonight, left their homes, and come to the house of God. And dear Savior, on this evening, almost at the end of the mission, we realize, Lord, that the stakes are high. We realize, Lord, that the issues are intense. And we pray that there will be nothing missed that ought to be grasped this evening. O oh, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh upon us, I pray. And come to me, Lord, I pray this night. And help me, my Father, to say what counts and to leave unsaid what is not necessary. And in everything to... Uh, bring to the mind, heart, will, and emotion of this congregation of waiting people things that will benefit them not just for life, but in the moment and hour of death and in the great eternity beyond. And we pray, Lord, that there will be memorable events in lives tonight as people are brought not just to the threshold, but right over the threshold and in through the doorway of salvation, and who will leave this building tonight truly born of God's Spirit, transformed by power divine. Help me, I pray, 
and be glorified in the midst. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray, and for thy sake and glory only. Amen and amen. If there is a title message for my message for tonight, it would be the judge on trial. It's not often that the judge goes on trial, but there is no doubt that in this particular passage that we read, and if we had read the earlier verses of the chapter, we would have found that here in this courtroom is a man called Felix and a man called Paul. There were other people present, but they were not really important figures in the narrative because God has, of course, zeroed in on two particular people, his servant, the Apostle Paul, and this man, Felix. And God, in his providence, allowed these two people to meet. And let me say to you tonight, God, in his providence, has allowed us to meet. I have said that on previous evenings, and it should bear telling every meeting and in every evening, because no two meetings are the same. No two congregations are the same. No two set of circumstances are exactly the same. People are not in the frame of mind tonight that they were in last night. It's different. And for me today, today and tonight, it is also the same. There is a burden on my heart. There is a message in my spirit. There is a word that God has given me for you this evening. And I want to give it to you as sincerely and with all the impact and effect that God's Holy Spirit can give to it to implant it deep within your heart, deep within your spirit, so that if we never meet again on life's journey, whenever our journey is over and the story is finished and the book of our lives is closed, that when we pass from this scene of time into eternity, I would love to meet every single man, every single woman in God's eternal heaven. Now, if we were all to be called from time to eternity now, I would imagine that in a congregation this size, there are some men, there are some women who are not born of the Spirit of God. I would imagine that in the average count of people of this size of a congregation, there would be some who are not truly saved. And so God has brought our paths across each other, just like he did today in those services. There were many, many, many men, many women that I will never see again, that I will never meet again. We will never pass that way again. And so every single meeting is fraught with possibilities either for good or ill. And that's true for tonight. This service is fraught with possibilities for good or for ill. I think that that was also the conviction of this man of God, the Apostle Paul. He knew that he would not meet this man again. And not meeting him again would mean that he would never have another opportunity to speak to him as he did. It seemed to me that when the Apostle Paul was speaking to this man that God was working in the circumstances of the event because for sure he did meet him again and he was to be blessed with the opportunities of addressing him further after this event. But here is a focal moment in the meeting of the two individuals. And as the Apostle Paul speaks to this man, 
the Lord begins to work deeply on his heart. And this woman, Drusilla, his wife, third woman in his life, this woman was moved. And she was moved sufficiently to send word and ask for the Apostle Paul. What we read was, after certain days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. You know, it's quite remarkable that Drusilla was the one who sent for Paul. Let me just tell you in two or three brief sentences the record of Drusilla's life. She was of the family of Herod. Her great-grandfather Herod had tried to kill the infant Christ. A little later on, another one of her family brought John the Baptist to the end of his life by beheading him. And now we find her here, and there's more to the story, but now we find her here asking for the Apostle Paul to come. It's a lovely, wonderful thing whenever the Holy Spirit begins to work on a person's life. And they begin to come to meetings like these and missions like these, and they don't just come once but they come a second time and a third time and maybe more. And as they come, the strange and mystic workings of God's Holy Spirit begin to feel and handle their inmost spirit and they find themselves back again and again and again. Way back a hundred years ago, there was an outstanding evangelist. His name was the Reverend W. Patterson Nicholson. And Mr. Nicholson was a unique preacher. But you know, he used to say, let a man come under my ministry three nights in a row, and I am sure he will get saved. Such was the conviction and the power that three nights under that man of God was sufficient to bring ungodly men and thousands and thousands there were who came from the shipyard Harlan and Wolfe and listened to William Patterson Nicholson. And on the third night, many a man could stick it no longer, cracked, went down under the hand of God and was wonderfully saved. Now, I sometimes only get one chance because society has changed over the last years and people are busy, and they don't be able to get every night, and you work long through the day, and maybe tired in the evening, and there are many other things that Satan uses to pull us away from this influence and this atmosphere. But having said that, let me come back to the meeting and not prolong it overly. As the Apostle Paul spoke about three very important things that were really very relative to the lives of Felix and Drusilla, God began to work in his heart. And God's man spoke about righteousness. And you know, whenever Paul spoke about righteousness, I am sure that he spoke to the people there and those, that couple about the Lord Jesus. Because who is the righteous one? Well, he is the righteous one. And the Bible says that he has made unto us righteousness. And so whenever I'm speaking about Jesus, I'm speaking about one who is pure, transparent, beautiful, white, glorious, outshining in splendor. 
And when we come within His presence, we feel ourselves to be unclean. It's whenever we take a white shirt and hold it up to the sunlight that we see whether it is pure white or whether it is stained. If we look at it in the gloaming, then we're not sure what the condition of the fabric, the material, or the garment is. But put it up against the clear sunlight of a sunlit day, and we see the darkness, or we see the staining on the color and on the cuffs and whatever. Ladies and gentlemen, when we are brought into the presence of the eternal Son of God, and sit in His presence or feel ourselves to be face to face with Him, we are fully conscious that we are in the presence of a blaze of light. My dear people, the Bible tells us that they need no light in heaven. Do you know why? Because the Lamb is the light. And the eternal glory is ablaze with the light and presence of Jesus. When he came into this earth, his glory was laid aside. His effulgent beauty was hidden. But for a brief moment on a mountaintop, one day with three of his closest disciples with him, he, was led, he led them up to the top of the mount. And in a moment of time, the Bible tells us in Matthew's gospel, he was transfigured before them. And they looked on him and his raiment was glowing white like no fuller could white it. It was like the sun in its midday strength. And friends, tonight, let me say this. In the presence of Jesus, you and I are utterly unfit and unclean and impure. And indeed, it tells us that even all our righteousnesses, all our goodnesses, all the very best things about us, in the white light of His presence are like filthy rags. And do you know tonight, just like the prodigal as he left home and went away and fed the pigs and lived in a far country, he was reduced to rags and he came back in rags in garments that were worn and torn and he looked like a sketch as we might say. And yet it tells me that the Father ran to meet him and that, of course, in itself was a very striking thing because it was beneath a man to run in those days. It wasn't considered to be uh, kind of uh, mature or uh, decent to do such a thing. Threw his arms around his poor by vagabond son and brought him home and put on him, what does it say? The best robe, the best robe. God wants to take your rags tonight, all the good things that you think about yourself, that you wrap around yourself and say, you know, Pastor Eric, these will do me in the presence of Jesus. I don't need this salvation. I don't need to repent of my sin. In fact, I don't really think I am much of a sinner when I think about such and such a person down the road or somewhere else. I, I really don't fit into that, that category of people who could be looked upon as big sinners. But in the presence of Jesus, there are no small sinners. In the presence of the Lord Jesus, there is no small sin. And tonight we, in our natural state, we are condemned already. Not only condemned, but spiritually dead. Our emotion is deadened. Our understanding, says the Bible, is darkened. 
and our wills are opposed to God because it tells us in the Bible that we are enemies by wicked works in our mind. You say, Eric, is, does the Bible really say that? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And it's only whenever that really gets a grip on us and we really feel that, that we feel, oh God, I am unclean, unclean, like the leper cried out, unclean, unclean. I need someone, something, somewhere, somehow, sometime to make me clean. There's a hymn that goes something like this. We had it on our program some weeks ago. And it was the Reverend Douglas Crossman was singing it. Douglas might be in the glory now. I'm not really sure if he's still here on earth. But what a wonderful servant of God he was and stayed in our home. And he was singing this song. Oh, make me clean. Oh, make me clean. Mine eyes thy holiness have seen. Oh, speak, O Lord, another time and make me clean. Oh, make me clean. Felix felt conviction whenever the apostle put his finger on that issue. He also spoke about temperance. And neither Felix nor Drusilla were self-disciplined as far as morals were concerned. They didn't have a very moral lifestyle. And that's why they were together, actually, because of how they had lived in the past and the people they had had in their lives and the people they had dumped in their lives and how they found themselves, they had taken on each other and they were good bedfellows. They were well met. But when the Apostle Paul began to put his finger on issues concerning morality and immorality, oh, did they feel the pressure? Did they feel the fire? Did they begin to squirm? As far as Drusilla was concerned, thou shalt not commit adultery. Though she was a Jewess and would have known the commandment, it didn't have any influence in her lifestyle. She lived as she lived because that's the way her heart drove her. And maybe tonight you're living here and you're looking back in your life you say, you know, Eric, you're touching me very closely now. It's like today on the outskirts of the congregation gathered all over that graveyard a lady heard a few men and there was no talking, I can tell you, of any significance. But at one point, a man said to his two or three friends, he's talking to us now. He's talking to us now. And it wasn't said in a cavalier way. It wasn't said as a snide remark. It was people, men, who were feeling God handling their lives. I don't know your life. I don't know your past. But we are in the presence of one who does. 
There is nothing we can hide. This book says, All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I tried to cover my sin, but try as I could, I couldn't. And he who has eyes of fire saw everything that I'd done, every lie I'd told, everything I'd stolen, every swear word that came out of my mouth, and every time I used the Lord's name in vain as an unconverted young man, God saw it all. Thank God I was converted before I ever got into an immoral lifestyle. I never lived long enough to get into that flow of life, but all down through the years, how many I have met who have had that background, that checkered background. But let me tell you something. It doesn't matter how checkered your background is. It doesn't matter if you had ever lived, and I don't, I'm not assuming anybody has, but it wouldn't matter if you'd lived in the red light districts of our cities. I know a Savior who can go right in there and lift you right out of that and change you completely. A few years ago, Mrs. Stewart and I were in South Wales. We were down there in ministry. And then one day we went to see a place called Hope House. And when we got there, the girl that came up through our youth work in Bangor in the 1970s was the main girl there, wonderful girl, Julie. And she just loved those girls that lived on the streets in the red light districts. And she could pick them out in the darkness of the night. And why, my dear people, so many of them were brought to the Lord Jesus Christ. And a gaggle of girls came in when we were there. Lovely girls. Happy, laughing, talking. And all of them had been rescued from a life on the streets. And others who were heroin addicts brought to the Lord Jesus, transformed by His power. Of course, their street life was to help to feed their addiction. But God took them off the streets and took them off their addiction and made them into the princesses that we saw them to be. And then one day we had the joy of being at a wedding in Fraserburgh where seven of the bridal group were all converted from the streets and from addiction and brought to the Lord Jesus. And what a picture it was as a father presented his beautiful daughter down the aisle to stand beside her beloved and to present her as a new wife to this young man who both had been heroin addicts. And he said, I never thought thought I would see the day when I would lead my daughter down the aisle to be married, he said, I thought rather I would be carrying her out in a box. Oh, my friends tonight, it doesn't matter what your past has been. If your past was so black that it would put a stain in a bucket of tar, Jesus can change it all. Wash it out, blot it out, take 
and make the slate completely clean and you will be a brand new man. I can't tell you what it will be like, but it's like a, just a real bath, inward, outward, upward, downward, in right, out right, up right, down right, all right. I got that right this time. <laughs> oh, yes. Right before God. Right in yourself. Right for eternity. All right. And judgment. This was the apostle's emphasis. Sometimes when I'm speaking, I'm here in body, but my spirit is in the room where that event was taking place. And I think I see the servant of God, Paul the Apostle, who we are told was not an impressive man by physique, small, maybe even somewhat stooped over, but who had been through so much batterings and shipwrecks and beatings and stonings and left for dead and dragged outside the city of Lystra and left there for dead and was probably somewhere between life and death because he talks about a man caught up into the third heaven, whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. And they reckon that that was when Paul was stoned and left for dead at the gates of the city. God spared him and brought him back. Why? Because he wanted him to meet this man, Felix, and speak to him, and Drusilla, and give them an opportunity to close with Jesus Christ. And so the conviction and the power was not in the impressive oratory of the man. It was in the Spirit of God working in the heart of those who were listening. Judgment to come. When an old soldier was dying on the battlefield, it was said that as the chaplain came by, he was in his final breathings. And as the man tried to minister to him, he said, Oh, he said, I'm not afraid of death, but I am afraid of what comes after death. And what comes after death? The book tells us. After death, the judgment. The judgment. What awesome court cases we've had in history. I've never stood in a dock. Thank God for that. I've been in a courtroom all right. But I'm glad I never stood in the dock. I don't know how I would handle it. But in some of those great cases where the man in the dock has a deep, dark, dreadful past and some awful crime, how he stands and faces a judge and how does he pan out the events and the witnesses and all the leading up circumstances and all of that, it must be quite something. But my dear people, Let's transpose that from here to the courtroom of eternity. And the infallible judge of all, seated on his throne, and for all those without a Savior who are brought to it, and you say, well, what is it like? I can't, 
I can only tell you what the Bible tells us. It's a great white throne. And him that sat upon it, from whose heavens, from whose face the heavens and earth fled away. And there was found no place for them, says the Apostle John. And I saw the dead, small and great, important and unimportant. I saw them stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books. And whoso's name was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And then this telling sentence at the end of Revelation chapter 20, this is the second death. Judgment. When thy mortal life is fled, when the death shades o'er thee spread, tell me where Oh, where wilt thou appear? You know, I think society has changed a lot. In fact, I know it has. From 50 years ago, when as two young preachers, John Morrow and I, were evangelists, mission after mission, people were coming to Jesus Christ. Young men, some of them sitting here tonight actually in the service, you may not know them, but I know them. Older people, that was a constant event. But things have changed. People have become more stoic. They become less convinced of the issues of eternity. And I think it was Wesley who said to me the other night, our son Wesley, as he was driving me home, you know, Dad, he says, I think that people have almost become immune to someone trying to bring them to a decision to seek the Lord on the spur of the moment, as you might say. It's not exactly how I put it. But he said they're so accustomed to scams and people coming and saying, do it now and jump you into a decision that it almost has maybe being a crossover into people's psyche. This man's trying to jump me into something and back off. We're just talking. Are you like that? You say, Eric, you're not going to jump me into it. I'm going to wait. I'm going to take time to think about this. That was Felix. He said, Paul, though I'm shaking, and it says here, as I read it, Felix trembled. The word in the Greek signifies Felix was terrified. Felix was terrified. And here's a man who is cultured and cultivated 
in the society in which he lived and the role in which he served to be stoical, to be unemotional, to be deadpan. But here he is now shaking. That's not because of the Apostle Paul. That's because God is dealing with him. And I've seen that happen. I've seen people shake. I've seen people weep. I've seen people moved, deeply moved. Moved so much that sometimes they can hardly wait to get to the altar, can hardly wait to get to the inquiry room to settle the business, lest they should die and be lost forever. But we become more stoical, more reserved, more canny, more laid back. Oh, that God could pull us up, my dear friends, to be convinced for once in our lives. This, as Martin I knew, a man that I knew very well in Bangor, said the first night he came into the church in our new church building and walked across the car park, he said, boys, this is serious business. And later on he settled the business and sought the Savior. But this man, Felix, and his spirit said, Paul, you're not going to bounce me in. Go your way. When I have a convenient season, I'll call for you. He made an assumption that there would be a better day. He made an assumption that the Holy Spirit who was striving with him would strive with him another time. He made an assumption that he would live long enough to have another opportunity. Paul, go your way. When it suits me, I will be saved. So many say that. And it is my prayer tonight not to really strike a negative, but to really strike a positive tonight. And to ask you, will you be the one who will come to the point where you say, you know, Pastor Eric, I'm here in the providence of God. I have a beating heart, I have a sound mind, and I have the privilege of stepping out, if I will, on the side of Jesus. And God helping me this night, I am going to settle this business. That's what a big man said to me one night who had fought a rear guard action at Dunkirk, who had little no time for the things of God when we first met, but who came to the missions and kept coming, kept coming with his wife and three boys, full carload, almost every night. And then on to the next mission, which was further on, came two, three nights a week. And then one night, much bigger man than me, he said, you know, Eric, I've thought about this long enough. Now, he said, I'm going to act on it. I'm going to get right with God. And he came back into the little portable hall, pushed back the pew to give him room to get down on his knees on a wooden floor. And there, like a baby, he came to the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there a man tonight who would be man enough 
to step up and take your stand by the man of Calvary, who is the man of all men, Would there be a man or a woman tonight who would say from your heart, I will. When that preacher, that man I referred to, Mr. Nicholson, said, is there a man tonight, where's the men tonight who will step up and stand out for Jesus Christ? Say, I will. I think I told you this the other evening. We had a lady in our church and she was just a little girl and she says, I still remember those meetings. And she said, all over the church, and there was a big St. Enoch's church, three galleries, big Ravenhill, Ravenhill Road Presbyterian church where they bent the barriers down, the steel barriers outside the church with the weight of men pressing to get into the building that was already filled. They were shouting, I will, I will, I will. And she said, the stamp of their hobnailed boots coming down the stairs, I can still hear them yet, and down the aisles as they came to seek the Lord Jesus Christ. So, my friends, tonight, God is still the God of salvation. But it's wonderful when you can come to the point and say, He is the God of my salvation my salvation. The Lord is my shepherd. I am his. He is mine. You know, Eric, you're saying, I, I don't really belong to this church. I've just come in here tonight. I'm not really into this. The issue on which I'm speaking is not to do with any church. I don't care what church you go to or don't go to. Somebody said one night you could have your, your name on uh, five churches, church rolls. And he said you might as well have, have it on a sausage roll. Is your name on the roll? Are your feet on the rock? Is your hand in the hand of Jesus? No more convenient day. No presumption in that there might not, that there be another day. No presumption that God's Spirit will speak to you another time. No presumption that you and I will meet again. The only thing that's sure is that now we are at the crux of the issue. And the cross, in all its hideousness of agony and all its glory of redemptive power, confronts you and you find yourself in spirit near the cross.
He fixed, said to him, Rider, his languid eyes on me. As near his cross I stood. Oh, can it be that on a tree the Savior died for me? My soul is thrilled. My heart is filled to think he died. For me. In fact, it touches me so much that if I sat where you're sitting and I was in your condition, I would be making a move to come to the cross and embrace it with both hands and say, I come. My message is through. There's nothing more to say. Now is the time for you to act. Your blood is off my hands. It's on your own hands and head. What will you do with Jesus? Let's pray together.